Good evening, everybody. It's good to see you again. Tonight we're in Philippians 3. And this text starts off with a command that some of us might find a little strange. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It seems like that would be a hard thing to do on command. Rejoice. There's some of you that could probably take that and say, Oh, I can do that. Britta? And a few others. Uh, but some others thinking, uh, I don't know if I can do that right now. And perhaps I don't know a time that I could do that. Uh, you know, it's, I rejoice in other things. I rejoice when things go well, when uh, good things happen to my friends or family. But to rejoice in the Lord, it's a little difficult. Maybe because God is distant or your understanding of God is of a God who's displeased with you. It would be really hard you to rejoice in the Lord, or to rejoice on command. Uh, Our text tonight is going to tell us how you get to a place in which you can consistently be the kind of person where someone could say, hey, rejoice in the Lord, and you say, I have every reason to do so. You're right, I should. Uh, Paul, some 14 times, I think, in this book, something like that, tells them to rejoice. And it's something I think that we would like to do. We would like to live more joyful lives, but we don't know how to get there. Today's text is a very important step in our understanding of how to live more joyful lives. So, Philippians 3, 1-11. Feel free to follow along as I read. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death." That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All right, let's pray together. Great Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show us uh, wonderful things in your word. That you would enlighten our minds, soften our hearts, press these truths into the realities of our lives, we pray. Amen. Have you ever misplaced your confidence? You know, trusted in something that wasn't quite deserving? relied on something a little more fully than any reasonable, decided, responsible decision would call for. I'm sure you have. We've all done this at some point. And uh, the results can often be painful. So I'll I'll use a humorous example from my own life. (laughs) Lots of these, by the way. Um, When I was in grad school, I worked many jobs. And one year or two, I was a valet. And when you're a valet, you do two things. You run a lot. You do three things. You run a lot, you drive a lot of cars, and you stand around all night trying to find some way to entertain yourself. And one night we were working out uh, the symphony orchestra in St. Louis, a nice place, but it was during the show and we had nothing to do. 
And uh, being a bunch of stupid guys, we're finding stupid things to do to entertain ourselves. And uh, I was probably 24 and sort of in the prime of my athletic health, actually. And I was a good leaper. I had been a good jumper my whole life. And there was a ledge there, about this high, maybe a little higher. And I was like, this is a good opportunity to make some money. So I just dared the guys. I'm like, I can jump flat-footed onto this. $5 bet. And they're like, yeah, whatever. So I did it. And took their money. It was awesome. <laughs> well, the next week comes around. It's a whole new group of guys. And uh, it's like, I know I can do this because I did it last week. So I raised the stakes. They don't know I can do this. I'm like, $10. I can jump onto that thing. Flat-footed. And they're like, we'll take your bet. You can't do it. And uh, a little too much confidence in myself. Made it to about right here. My toe slipped. And this is where it, it's painful to have too much confidence in yourself, to misplace your confidence. Because this was a stone ledge, and what hit it was not my feet, but my shins. And uh, they were bloody and bruised and remained that way for a couple weeks. And not only that, but my pride. Uh, you know, I did this in front of a public building with people watching, and I lost my money. <laughs> now, this is sort of a painful but humorous personal experience about the real-life consequences of misplacing your trust or relying too heavily uh, on something that's not quite trustworthy. Uh, but just as real, and perhaps just as painful, are the consequences that we reap in our lives if we misplace our confidence as regards having a right relationship with God. There are a couple of ways we do this. Uh, and I've had these conversations with different people. I've met some people, their confidence is, and I call these overgeneralization, I call these people slackers. Their approach to God is one of slackerdom. Um, my confidence is God will grade on a curve. So let me clarify. You're going to do nothing and hope God says that's okay. Correct. Okay. So that's one position. You do nothing and hope God grades on a curve. The other position is one probably more familiar to some of you, which is that of resume building. You think, if I work really hard, I trust God will see how hard I'm working and will reward my efforts. He will not only bless me, but be proud of me and love me and uh, make things work for me. He'll be pleased with me. The reality is we're often both these things at the same time. Uh, and yes, we are that complicated that we can do these things at the same time. Uh, often we rely on our resume building uh, to, to establish our relationship with God. And there are real consequences for this. We're often deprived of a real relationship with him because we're too busy performing. We're deprived of the vital connection. We've been talking about for weeks about the nature of sanctification, how God makes us like himself by working in us. If we're too busy working to please him, we're actually not experiencing his love and his power in a way that actually is at work on us. We're actually not being honest about who we are to allow God to work in us. But we're also deprived of the joy that we're meant to experience. There are real-life consequences for misunderstanding and putting your confidence in the wrong place as it regards establishing a right relationship with God. Tonight, this text tells us that uh, because God makes us right in Christ, we must put our full confidence in Him. Okay? Because God makes us right in Christ, we must put our full confidence in Him. By way of big theological introduction words, we've been talking about sanctification, how God makes us like Himself for a few weeks. Tonight we're talking about justification, how God makes us right legally in a relationship with Him. And we'll talk about three things. Uh, first, a contrast in confidence. And then a loss of a great resume. And then lastly, the great gain of knowing Jesus. Okay? 
So the first is contrast and confidence. And if you read this carefully, you have to be thinking, what happened to Paul between verses 1 and 2? Rejoice in the Lord. I don't mind telling you this again. It's good for you. Look out. Beware. Look out. Now, I'm not the kind of person that uses exclamation marks. And those of you that know me, you'd say, that makes sense. (laughs) Uh, I just don't use them. And yet, if I was the translator of this text, there would be an exclamation mark in that sentence. This is clearly emphatic. He repeats the verb three times. The words are intentionally incendiary. Um, This thing deserves an exclamation mark. Anything does. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, it's a strange verse. And you just got to trust me on this as I tell you what I think it means. What Paul's dealing with here, as he cares for the Philippians, is a group of people that are coming in that are trying to influence them. And what they're basically saying to them is, yeah, you're Christians and all, but you're not really real Christians. Like You could be more mature and more like Jesus if you just did this and just did what we do. He's dealing here with people that are building their resume, but ironically, and what I'm calling resume irony, Paul is using his, their resume against them. So this look out for the dogs. Uh, what we have here are, are Jewish believers, probably Jewish, sort of, sort of Jewish Christians, that are uh, demanding that the Philippians and all the Gentiles act like Jews did in the Old Testament in pretty much every way. And um, it was common for the Jews of the day to view outsiders like Gentiles and call them dogs because dogs were un- unclean and dirty and filthy and they were the clean people. So Paul is saying uh, these super spiritual Jewish folks, they're dogs. Uh, in other words, Paul's not being very nice. Um, I think it's great. Uh, and then he says, uh, look out for the evildoers. These people are actually would come in and say, we really obey God. We really do good works. You should be like us. And Paul's saying, yeah, but because of the way you do it and why you do it, actually it does no good. It does you no good. You're actually doing evil. And uh, you, and what they were doing as Jewish Christians, they were coming into the Gentiles and saying, if you're going to be really right with God, all you Gentiles need to be circumcised. You're not really right with God. Jesus does not enough for you. You have to start acting like Jews of the Old Testament did. So you need to be circumcised and obey the law. And Paul is saying, circumcision is so important to you. You're mutilators. He's taking what their, their perceived strengths are and saying, you're so emphasizing these things that you're missing the whole, the whole point. And you're leading people astray. And I'm telling everyone that I know to watch out for you. Because you're putting your confidence not in Christ... But in your own efforts, your works, your rights, your Jewish heritage, and you're missing, you're misplacing your trust. In contrast to that, Paul says to the Philippians, hey, but listen guys, look out for those guys, but listen, we, we, we are the true circumcision. We worship by the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ, we put no confidence in the flesh. Uh, In other words, he's saying, we don't rely on the flesh, we rely on our relationship with God. We are the true circumcision. The circumcision he's saying, look, even if you haven't been circumcised in the flesh, some of you that are like brand new to Christianity, we don't talk about circumcision every week. This hasn't happened like in years. It's just what the text says, so I've got to explain it. Um, um, you know, Paul makes his point in Romans. He makes the point. It's actually made in the Old Testament over and over. What really matters is this external sign should represent a renewed heart a new spiritual reality in the life of the person. And Paul's saying, Philippians, we have that. 
God's given us new hearts. And it's marked by the fact that we worship God by the Spirit. We glory or boast or trust in Christ, and we don't trust in ourselves. And the relationship that the Philippians and Paul has with God is all over this. It's actually Father, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit all here. We worship God. We worship Him over there by the Spirit in Christ. I mean, it's all woven in to the relationship that they have with God. That's what they rely on. That's what Paul's relying on. His confidence is in their relationship with God and not their resume building. So, but Paul says in verse 4 something very interesting. Uh, we put no confidence in the flesh, verse 3, though I have reason myself for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And it reminds me of uh, sort of a scene in The Princess Bride after uh, the man in black has bested the giant and the swordsman. He comes and there's the battle of wits. And uh, it starts off with uh, the opponent saying, let me put it this way. You ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Yes. Morons. Well, in that case, I challenge you to a battle of wits. And what Paul is saying here is, for a moment, though I put no confidence in the flesh, I'll play your game. I'll play your game. You got confidence in the flesh? I'll play your game for a minute. Let's see, where, where, where did I put that resume of mine? Oh, there it is. And he whips out his resume, and it's a great one. What we have now is the loss of a great resume, verses 4 to 8. It's an outstanding spiritual resume. First in verse 5, he talks about his pedigree. This almost, for some of us, it is offensive because we're such a merit-oriented society that we don't tend to think of pedigree and families. It's very important to these people. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. He's saying, for you super spiritual Jewish Christians, I am all Hebrew all the way. There's no way I can be excluded. Right people, right tribe, everything was done right. I belong. And by the way, we actually do care about pedigree. We just don't think about it in the same way. It might not be family, but we recognize the importance of fitting in. We call it networking. Or social networking. Or... um, I mean, we do this all the time, actually. As we think about making our way forward in the world, we realize, I really can't get that job if I dress like this and act like I normally do. I've actually got to cut my hair and shave my beard and actually learn to speak clearly. And it would actually help if I know some of those people in there, so I'm going to get to know some of those people. We do something like this all the time. And Paul is saying, you guys that value pedigree so much, I'm of the right stock. I'm of the right sort of people. Not only do I have the right pedigree, I have pretty good performance record. Verses 5 and 6, he says, uh, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I asked the law, you know, you want to know what school I went to, what school of study of scriptures I went to? I was a Pharisee. And they, they should have said, wow, Pharisees are hardcore. They were hardcore. They made a life of studying it. They took the word seriously. Uh, and uh, he's hardcore. As to zeal, you know, zeal in your resume would be something like all the extracurricular stuff you do. I'm so zealous about helping people that do all these things. Look how awesome I am. I really, really care. And Paul is saying, as to zeal, I cared so much about God's cause that I was willing to kill people for it. Okay, Paul, that's pretty zealous. And um, he goes on and says, as to righteousness under the law, if you want to know what my GPA was, you know, by sort of external observation, blameless. Got a 4-0. He's not saying you as perfect, perfectly sinless. Be saying, I dare you to find one person who's got one thing against me. One person that saw me break a law, find them. You're not going to find it. He's that confident in his resume. 
And uh, this is his real resume. He's not making this up. Um, and this sort of counters, I think, in some ways, the assumption some people have that religion is for, like, weak people, <laughs> losers. Uh, this is the resume of a spiritual winner in lots of ways. Right kind of person who performed well. And so it would be shocking when Paul says, this resume, it's a piece of crap. I'm not being rude. It's exactly what he says. This word, for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That word rubbish, it's actually nice. I know the men that translated this text, that made this text. I don't know why they use this word. They were being nice. The word is dung. Poop. Crap. And so, my sub point says crap. So I'm going to keep saying crap. <laughs> uh, he's saying, my resume, this super spiritual resume, is crap. It's not worth anything. It's loss. He says, this, this thing, whatever gain I had by all these things I was, all these things I did, I consider them loss. I consider them loss. People think it's great. I think it's loss. And he goes on and says, but more than that, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. I've suffered the loss of everything, and I count them as rubbish. What he's saying is, this thing is so valuable to some people, but I have come to conclude that this thing, this resume, actually is a liability. It's something that's actually keeping me from knowing Christ. His surpassing, the surpassing worth of knowing him is far greater than that, and this is in the way. This is in the way, so I'm willing to lose it. Paul, do you keep this resume on the wall? This is awesome in your office. No, no, it's crap. I got rid of it. I flushed it. I don't want it. It's gone. This resume is loss. It's bankruptcy. I don't want it. It's actually keeping me from what I really want, which is to know Christ. Now, this is really hard for us. Even, the, even those of you that grew up in the church, hearing this all the time, because we are a merit-based people by nature, sort of our spiritual DNA as a result of the fall. Uh, we all think we have to please God by our efforts because we think God can only be pleased if we work really hard. It's also really hard for us because we live in a production-oriented society where we assign value to ourselves and one another based on what we do in the world. So the first thing we ask someone after we ask them their name is, what do you do? That's right, so I can put you in a value category. That's what we are, and we think God's that way. God doesn't operate that way, and we have a hard time believing it. We have a hard time believing it. It's often said, and perhaps some of you are here tonight thinking this, um, I'm good enough. I'm a good person, even though I'm not very religious, and I don't need Christianity because I'm a good person. I have a resume, and it's a pretty good one. You should look at it. And so I want you to imagine with me this scenario, all of you. Imagine there's an old woman. I borrowed this, by the way. This is not mine. Uh, imagine there's an old woman. She's a widow, very poor. She has one child. As her son grows up, she teaches him how he should live. I want you to always tell the truth, to help the poor, keep your promises. I want you to work very hard. And the son listens. He does. And she sends him off to college with a little bit of money she saved up. He does well in school. He graduates from college. As the years go by, he doesn't call. He almost never talks to her. He never thanks her. I mean, he sends him a couple Christmas cards in the mail every now and then. 
It doesn't really communicate. He does, however, do everything she taught him to do. She tells the truth. He helps the poor. He keeps his promises. He works very, very hard. So what do you think? Is this all right? Is this a good person? No. It's terrible. It's wrong. It's ungrateful. His mother gave everything for him. And he can do the right things, but he does not love his mother, and maybe not anyone else. He does not have a relationship with her. And this is true not just in our daily lives, but on a cosmic level as well. That you can perform well and have a good resume, but be very far from God, because you don't love Him. Or understand His love. For Paul, good person par excellence, with a great resume, he knew. He knew that the way he was thinking about being good for God was actually a loss, keeping him from God. He was performing to try to establish a relationship with God. And it was actually a way to bankruptcy. So Paul gladly loses his resume. What's holding some of you back? Perhaps from knowing God? Or knowing Him more intimately? From experiencing His forgiveness? And I'm talking to people that may have grown up in the church, not just non-Christians. You're walking around under guilt or shame What's keeping you from experiencing forgiveness and joy and a depth of relationship you haven't had before is your resume. You still have a fundamental misunderstanding about the kind of God you're trying to serve. Thinking that you have to perform for a God that's displeased with you. And so instead of being honest and real with Him, you keep trotting out your resume. Look what I've done, God. Look what I'm doing for you. And you don't love Him. Because you've never known his love. The good news is you can lose your resume. And it's a good loss. You can lose it. And Paul gladly loses his in order to know the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. It's an experience in his life. Here we have the last point, the great gain of knowing Jesus. In verses 8 to 11. How is knowing Jesus, being in a relationship with him, great gain There's a lot in these verses. We're only going to talk about a few of the things. We'll pick up some of the other stuff next week. But first, it's a real relationship. There's a sense in which you can go through most of your life knowing a lot about God, a lot about Jesus, and not really having a relationship with Him. I know. I did it for a long time. Um, But there should be a vitality and intimacy of this relationship. There's sort of a hint of it in verse 8 and 9. In verse 9, 8, in order that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him. Now you may think I'm overstressing this point, but this language here, in him, is all over this short letter. In him, in Christ, in Jesus, and it's a really strange way to describe a relationship, isn't it? I mean, we don't talk that way about each other. Unless it's something like someone's really into somebody. Well... That actually progresses into marriage, um, or something worse, or something else. But um, the this this phrase is very intimate, and it speaks of a theological reality that we call union with Christ. 
if you've trusted Christ in your relationship with him, you're actually united to him. It's a real relationship. You know him. He knows you. He knows all of you. You know he knows all of you, good and bad. You still know his love. You still pursue him in spite of that. It's a real relationship. And not only do you have him in that relationship, but this is Christianity. You also have what he has. And what he has is righteousness and abundance. The great gain of knowing Jesus is not just that you have a relationship with him, but that he begins to make you right. Well, first he makes you right with God. This is what we call justification. He justifies you. This is in verse 9. Paul says, that I would be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul's saying, I'm in a close relationship, a united relationship with Jesus, not on the basis of my resume, not on the basis of my own righteousness that comes from the law, because there isn't one. That's what that resume was. I looked at it. And by the world standards, it was really good, and I realized I didn't love God or know God. I didn't have a relationship. It wasn't a real righteousness. I fell far short of the standard. Paul says in another book, you cannot get righteousness this way. You just can't do it. You can work your little hiney off. And you're not going to please God by your righteous works in the law. I tried and I tried, and I didn't even know who God was. There is a righteousness to be had, the righteousness from God. God's righteousness. Not just his righteous standard, that's what we tend to think of it. God is righteous and just and perfect, and I have to work hard enough to climb the ladder to get up there if he's going to love me. No, it's a righteousness that comes down in Christ. That Christ, as we studied in chapter 2, takes flesh, comes down, takes the role of a servant, lives a perfect life, full of righteousness, enough for all those who would trust in Him, dies on the cross, and then gives to His believers, those that trust in Him, His righteousness. Uh, This is the nature of justification. That on the cross, He takes your debt. Your resume that looks so good is actually loss. You think it's really good, but actually what it speaks of is debt. Like, you're really morally bankrupt. You owe God a lot. Far you had to walk away from that. Christ takes that on Himself, Gives you his perfect record. And that's how God the Father sees you. He doesn't treat you like a pauper. He doesn't treat you like a failure, a loser. He treats you like his own son. Perfect in righteousness. So he makes you right. He justifies you. And uh, this is, I think, one of the most beautiful things in all of Christianity. It's also very offensive to lots of us. Because what we're doing is enjoying the reward, the work of someone else. They've worked hard. Christ worked hard. Achieved perfection and righteousness then gives it to us. Now some of us, the slackers, would be like, I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take that. That's great. But us that think we have our act together that work really hard, it's really hard for us to say, I don't measure up. I'll take that. Uh, but there are times in life when we do it and uh, we sort of enjoy the benefits. Does anyone know who Dickie Simpkins is? Only diehard sports fans would. Yeah. Sorry, Tim Olson doesn't know. None of us know. Uh, you don't watch the NBA. So, Dick, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do, but you still would have known. Dickie Simpkins, uh, unknown to most, even most diehard sports fans, uh, 
has more NBA championships than LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Dirk Nowitzki and all kinds of modern superstars. He has three rings. He won three rings with the Chicago Bulls in 1996 through 1998. Yet, in those playoffs in 1996 and 97, he scored zero points, zero rebounds, zero assists, zero blocks, zero steals in the playoffs. He recorded zero minutes. Yet, Dickie Simpkins has three championship rings. Same cut, same quality, same design as those that Michael Jordan currently sports. Why? He was on the team. He was in a relationship with those players. He benefited from their work, from their sweat, from their effort. When they won, he won. And his ring is every bit the same quality and nature as their ring. You think Dickie Simpkins wants to give his ring back? Absolutely not. Friends, this is a picture of justification. We bring nothing to the table except the resume, which you're better leaving behind. And yet, because of what Christ has done, and what he's willing to give us out of his glad love and grace, we're counted righteous in him through his work, through his obedience. The way we make this ours is by relying on him and trusting in him. Verse 9 be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness from God that depends on faith. The way the righteousness of Christ becomes yours is by trusting in Jesus. By relying on Him instead of yourself. Instead of working real hard to add another line to your spiritual resume, to proofread it for the thousandth time so you can present it to God just right, Put it aside and say, I'm done working to try to please God so he'll forgive me. I'm going to rest in Christ's forgiveness and his righteousness. I'm going to stop trusting myself and rely on Christ who makes me right. Now, uh, what we've been talking about the last couple weeks, sanctification, how God not only makes us right with God legally, but makes us right, how he begins to like straighten out the broken places in us the bent places in us. That's in here too. He makes us right with the Father. And then, Paul says, I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and share in His sufferings. As a result of being in Christ, forgiven, viewed as righteous by the Father, God treats me as a son, sees me as a son, loves me as a son. All those things are true. Scripture says every single one of them, I promise. God now works in me, in my life that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection right now, today, in my life. Fixing the broken places, straightening the bent places, that I might actually begin to look like Jesus, be beautiful as He's beautiful, be righteous as He's righteous. And this will continue until I am perfectly like Him, in verse 11. Now, it's, it's my experience, and it's my experience talking to some of you, especially uh, you church folks that grew up, that would rightly call yourselves Christians, that you can believe, you can believe Christ died for you and forgave you. And you can possibly even believe that God now sees you as righteous because of what Jesus did for you. But you still have a really hard time on a day-to-day basis believing God the Father is pleased with you, loves you, rejoices over you because of all the brokenness in your life, all the mess in your life. And so you're still of your insecurity, working really hard. Now listen, you're supposed to work really hard for God's glory because you love Him, not so that He will love you, 
but you're working really hard to try to be good enough for him. What you need to know is this. God is absolutely dedicated to making you beautiful and right. He is absolutely dedicated to making you right. He will. If you've trusted him, he's declared you right. He will make every broken spot in your life, whether you broke it yourself or someone else broke it, he's going to make it right. It may take all your life and beyond, verse 11. It may take to the very end, but he's going to fix it. Everything will be fixed. That's the kind of God we serve in Christ. One who draws us close, makes us righteous, makes us right, makes us completely right. So the question that we finish with tonight, it's a very simple one, but a very direct one. There's no other way to get around it. Where's your confidence tonight? What have you been trusting in? I'm just going to be honest. We are by nature resume builders and slackers. We work really hard, then we slack really hard, then we pull up the resume and work really hard again. Because we're convinced that we have to perform for God. If you're not a Christian and you're here tonight, that is not Christianity. You cannot perform well enough for Him to love you. You cannot be righteous on your own. You cannot love God with your whole heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And even if you can do all the good things, do you actually love Him? Do you have a relationship with Him? Do you, like Paul, consider Christ, knowing Christ, of supreme value and worth? The invitation that I have for you is a good one. It's hard. You're working the wrong way. You have hard work to do, but it's not the work you're doing right now. You need to stop your resume building for God and start doing some other hard work. Like, study this more. Is this actually what you've heard Christianity is? This is what Christianity is. If you don't believe me, I can show you 15, 20 other passages along the same lines. This is what Christianity is. God makes us right because of what Jesus has done by grace through faith. Do that hard work. Study what Christ has done. Stop trying to please Him the wrong way. Pray for God to give you faith. And for those of you that are believers, that have trusted in Christ to forgive you, is this your confidence? Is it your confidence on a daily basis that God loves you has forgiven you, views you dressed in the beautiful, righteous robes of Jesus. He loves you as He loves His Son. Because of that, you should work hard for His glory with the knowledge that He's working in you to make you right, and He will make you right. Is that your confidence? If that's your confidence, friend, you'll have some joy. You will have some joy. All right, let's pray together.